again, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome back to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. How about a hand for Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys for livening things up? Let's give a Last Chair shout out to High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. When you're in town, visit one of High West locations in Park City and nearby Wanship. And welcome back to Level 9 Sports. From Orem to Mill Creek to Salt Lake City and up to Ogden, Level 9 Sports is the perfect ski and board shop for your family. Check out the newly renovated downtown Salt Lake City store. You can also find them at level9sports.com. It has been dumping powder here in Utah, so get down to Level 9 Sports for the latest gear for the family. Today we're going to talk about fear. Yeah, that's right. You know the feeling. You climb off the tram at Snowbird, click into your bindings, and you glide out onto the ridge above the cirque, looking down and thinking to yourself, do I really want to do this? We watch pro athletes on skis and boards do ridiculous tricks and wonder, how in the world do they do that? Are they fearless? That was pretty much the sensation that Utah transplant Kristen Ulmer felt at her first film shoot. But she made what seemed to be an unusual decision at the time. Kristen Ulmer decided to embrace the feeling of fear. It led her to a robust career doing things on skis she never thought possible. And today, she's recognized as one of the greatest big mountain skiers of her time. She's been heralded on magazine covers, and she was recently inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. I had long followed Kristen's career as a U.S. Ski Team Moguls athlete and later as a big mountain skier. And I had always been amazed at how she was able to manage what we all know as fear and translate it into this special energy that helped her become successful in life. She is a colorful character, an integral part of the Ski Utah landscape, and just a really good soul. Last chair caught up with Kristen Ulmer at her home in the Salt Lake City foothills overlooking the city, talking about her career on the mountain, her on-snow camps where she teaches skiers and riders how to embrace fear, and her fascinating book, The Art of Fear. Buckle in for a wild and crazy ride with Big Mountain skier Kristen Ulmer on The Art of Fear. Kristen Ulmer, great to see you. I think it's been a couple years since we were skiing at Canyons. Yeah, we got inducted into the Hall of Fame at the same time. It was the first time that we really got a chance to spend time together. It's been a lot of fun for me the last few years, and that was a great occasion. This was the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame induction back in 2019. You were inducted, I was as well, and we had a great Sunday ski over at Canyons. But for you, uh, you've had a great career, and we're going to talk about this, and that must have been a really emotional evening for you to be inducted and honored by your peers. It was. I know that my speech was something along the lines of me seeing skiing as a person in my life whom I used to be obsessed with, but then he, I, I call him he, started to put me in the hospital and kill my friends and try to kill me. And I, I kind of realized that it was an unhealthy relationship. I was addicted to him and he was just mean. And so I quit. And I've spent a lot of time trying to fall back in love with skiing, going on dates with skiing from time to time. And I feel like the Hall of Fame induction is where I finally just went ahead and committed and married the son of a bitch. <laughs> 
Your speech that evening was really wonderful. I mean, it was very emotional, I think, for a lot of us in the audience who are really attached to the sport because it just showed the love they have. And I know you're talking about the hate relationship maybe with the sport, but there's a love relationship with it too. I can't shake him. <laughs> I can't shake skiing. But I don't identify, and I said this in my speech, I don't see myself as a skier anymore. I see myself as a person who skis, which is very different. You're not from Utah. I think you grew up in New England, but what was your upbringing and how did you get into skiing back as a young girl? I grew up in New Hampshire in a small town named Henniker, New Hampshire, Pat's Peak Ski Area, 700 vertical feet. I grew up in a house that was built in 1786 and it hadn't been remodeled. Now think about that for a second. <laughs> same kitchen cabinet, same floors, like... I just went skiing with my girlfriends because that's what they did. They had kind of the equivalent version of a soccer mom, a ski mom. And I don't think that I would have gotten into skiing if it hadn't been for them and their mom. And then right around age 15, 16, I then became really into skiing. And I would skip out of school to go skiing during lunch breaks. And then I finally got caught my senior year. I almost didn't get to graduate because I had so many detentions from <laughs> skipping school to go skiing. But I skied in jeans until I was 20 years old, which is to say, I, you know, I wouldn't even spring for a pair of ski pants. It's kind of... <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest and skiing in jeans is a very, I always thought of it as a very Midwestern thing, but maybe it's an Eastern thing too. It was back then. I don't think it is anymore. By the way, uh, parents who are listening to this, if your kids are skipping school to go skiing, Kristen, that's not such a bad deal, right? Oh, encourage them. <laughs> encourage them. I think a lot of moms and dads who have skied totally understand it, but that's a good mark to put up on the wall. Yeah, I got detention from school because I went out skiing one day. Yeah, and I had arranged my schedule so I could ski every day. I didn't really think anything of it back then, but I was definitely manipulating the principal into thinking that I was taking college classes. It's it's a long story. I was very clever, and I still got straight A's, so I don't think it did any harm. But you more or less got a college education by what you learned from the sport of skiing over time. Oh, yes. Certainly a college education because I was a professional skier, like a business degree. Because if you're going to be a professional skier, it's, it's basically you're in sales and marketing. You're selling yourself as an athlete. Now, you chose a path that uh, I think with you, this is actually more of a normal path and then diverted from it. But you started out in your competitive period as a mogul skier, looking at, I don't know if your aspirations were the Olympics or what were your goals as a young mogul skier? I had absolutely no goals whatsoever. And this is probably one of the strangest things about my ski career. I also was like the last person to be chosen for elementary and high school sports teams. Like I was not athletic at all. And I just was obsessed with skiing. When I moved to Snowbird in Utah, I started hanging out with a bunch of people that were competing in moguls and I just wanted to hang out with them and go on road trips. So that's why I started competing in moguls because that's what they were doing. I had no goal to get on the U.S. ski team. And next thing you know, I was on the U.S. ski team and, you know, competing against girls that had the finest training money can buy, you know, that had gone to high school ski academies. Aside from lessons in second grade, I'd never had any kind of ski training whatsoever. Next thing you know, I'm on the U.S. ski team a mere three years after I bought my first pair of ski pants. It was kind of shocking how fast it happened. Yeah, the ski team would not like the blue jeans, probably. No. <laughs> no. Did you have any heroes growing up in sport or in skiing? 
None. No, I didn't read the ski magazines. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know that there was skiing anywhere else in the world besides New Hampshire until I was 16 years old and I stumbled upon a ski magazine. I remember reading it because I started crying because my parents had taken me in, in January a few years prior to Europe and I didn't want to go because I didn't want to leave skiing. And then I, I read this article that they were skiing in Europe and then I started crying. <laughs> Did you go to Europe then? I had been to Europe when I was 13 and I didn't want to go. And I didn't, if I had known there was skiing there and my parents could have taken me skiing there, then I would have gone. I would have been more excited about going. Now, this is a few years before the dawn of social media. So you were a little bit isolated in Hanneker, New Hampshire at that point. Oh, yes, definitely. And my parents were really hands-off parents. Like, literally, I could stay out all night at age 13 and wouldn't get in trouble and they would barely notice. So what was it that finally brought you out west to Utah? If you didn't know about skiing anywhere else, was there something that triggered that move? I wound up going to my first semester, official semester of college in England. And then I took the second semester off to travel around Europe and ski. I was 18 years old at the time. And when I came home, I'm like, that's it. I need to ski. And so I started asking around. I said, where is there good skiing? And people told me about the West. And they mentioned Park City. They mentioned, I knew Colorado had skiing. I had never heard of Aspen. I'd never heard of Vail. I had heard of Squaw Valley, but I didn't know it was a ski resort. Or I was very naive. And somebody said, oh, they're skiing in Utah. And so that's where I went. And it was it just that reason that you came out? Or were you going to go to school or anything else? Or you just came out to Utah for the skiing? I was going to go to school at the University of Utah. Between that and the University of Colorado at Boulder. And then my mom found a one-way airline ticket for 40 bucks in the paper. And that's how I decided to, to go Salt to Utah. To Salt Lake City. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know. I had never heard of Snowbird before until I got here. And somebody, I said, yeah, I want to work at one of the ski resorts. And they said, oh, well, you should be at Snowbird. I'm like, what's that? And I'm, I'm at this point 19 years old. What was your first impression when you went up Little Cottonwood Canyon, you saw Snowbird and Alta? What did you think? I mean, this was not New Hampshire anymore. Of course, there was no snow on the ground yet. I was thinking it was beautiful, but I didn't know about... I had skied powder in Yugoslavia and Sarajevo during that semester that I went skiing, but... I didn't know anything about powder. I didn't know anything about Snowbird and its annual snowfall. I just knew nothing. I just thought it was pretty. And then it started snowing. And oh, <laughs> I got a job at a grocery store bagging groceries and cashier. And whenever it was snowing outside and it was a powder day and I couldn't ski because I was working, I would just stand there crying. And they fired me after three months. <laughs> <laughs> But you got a pass somehow. Yep. You got a pass. And how many days did you ski that first winter? Oh, well over 100 for sure. In your first winter? Yeah. Transformational? Yeah, I skied every day. And where did you like to ski up in the mountain there? I like to ski the moguls, to be honest, because that's where my friends were skiing. I like to ski underneath the chairlift because I wanted to try and show off. Somehow I'm not surprised by that, huh? <laughs> Yeah. And that's where a lot of the mogul runs were, you know, under P-Dog, we called it Peruvian chairlift. I just want to go back to this. You know, you grew up in New Hampshire and there are some great ski mountains in New Hampshire and in, in New England, but this really is a completely different type of alpine terrain. This is more like what you would see in the Swiss Alps. This just had to really leave a, an amazing, indelible impression on you. It did. I mean, I had spent those three months skiing in Europe, but when I was in Europe, I didn't have any money. And I 
would like climb up the mountain to the second high, you know, the second chairlift. So I didn't have to buy a lift ticket. And I didn't really ski that much during those three months because I didn't have money for lift tickets. This is what the first time in my life that I got to just ski every day. And I mean, the scene there was just electric, you know, because it was just such good snow and the vibe, you know, there weren't the lift lines that we have now. I just skied a lot. I remember like I couldn't walk at the end of every day. Eventually I got a job and there's cement floors, waiting tables in the Cliff Lodge. And I was so just exhausted, just hammering moguls all day, then waiting tables on cement floors all night and just doing this seven days a week. It was brutal on my body, but I just couldn't stop. Was there a strong community of women skiers at that time? Not necessarily. And I've never really been into the whole women's, you know, community scene, like men, women, it like it just was all the same to me. I would say that I mostly skied with men, but there was like a scene of seven or eight people, men and women that were shooting pictures and they weren't making films or anything, but they were on the cover of the ski magazines. And there was that scene too, the film and photo scene. And I got involved in that pretty quickly too, because I was model size and I had long hair and I was cute. You know, it's kind of interesting today. It's all about filming and there's so many outlets for film from social media to the big silver screen. But if you go back a little bit in time when you were here, there certainly were films, but that whole still photo era and just going out with the photographers and finding those great powder stashes, was that something that you really sought out? Were you looking to get your picture on the cover of the magazines? The term is ski model. And yes, I was definitely, I got very heavily involved in that and I got heavily involved in mogul skiing because that was what the people that I was skiing with were doing. That's what the best skiers on the mountain were doing. Yeah. Do you still ski moguls today? Not really. No. Not really. No. (laughs) Now, what was your competitive career in moguls like? Well, like I said, I was just going to these competitions with my friends and I came in last place, last place. They talked me into doing aerial competitions where you just go off a jump and do a big spread eagle or a big daffy. I did those too. Last place in every competition. And then one year, somebody asked me in the spring, what are you doing this summer? And I wanted to have something cool to say. So I said, oh, I'm going to Asia for the summer. And I didn't even know where Asia was, but it just sounded cool. And then because I had announced it, I'm like, I have to do it now. So I went to a travel agent. I'm like, I need a ticket to Asia. And they said, where? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I don't know what Asia is. (laughs) So they sent me to Hong Kong. Anyway, I I spent four months just working on my self-esteem and not talking about skiing and trying to make myself as ugly as possible. I just really realized that my self-esteem was fragile and based on my good looks and my skiing ability. And I wanted to work on something deeper for myself. I was 23 at the time, 1988. I didn't think about skiing the whole time. And I came home and I went from last place in mogul competitions to taking first place in mogul competitions that same season. And by the end of the season, I was on the U.S. ski team for moguls. It was a shocking transformation. And I didn't even think about skiing the whole summer or visualize none of that. And somehow it worked. We're going to talk more about fear in a little bit, but in your book, Art of Fear, you talked about that trip to Asia to try to work on your self-esteem. What is the connection between self-esteem and fear? Are there things that skiers should look at? I mean, how important is that? Well, I could find a way to bridge the gap, but I think it's two separate conversations. Well, I will bridge the gap. For me, working on my self-esteem was going out and doing something really scary. And I'll tell you what, traveling by yourself around Asia, India, 
Nepal. I mean, I went to Bangladesh. I got robbed in the Philippines. I volunteered for Mother Teresa's House for the Destitute and Dying in Calcutta, India. I almost lost my leg to gangrene on that trip in 1988. And I just did a lot of really scary things. I slept in the bushes, you know, and I came home a completely changed person because I had done all these scary things. I think that that's probably the trip, just I'm having the realization right now where I got really into fearful experiences because I, they made me feel so alive and they helped me learn and grow so much. So I came home and I think that it was just a different experience for me with fear and I was more into feeling fear that definitely helped me in the mogul skiing. And I also think that just, I felt like such a badass by doing what I did that summer that I came home and the badass stayed when I got in the gate for moguls. Did you talk about that trip a lot at the time? No, I didn't because nobody could relate. I had just had such a life-changing experience. And if I started talking about it, people's eyes would glaze over. It was very lonely, actually, to come home and realize that I couldn't share this with anyone. And I didn't take a single photo on that trip. You know, it's interesting. If you think about it in today's terms, it's probably something that one might even share on their social media as they're doing it, but it was a completely different world then. Yeah. And I don't think that I would have shared it. Social media, like I've been all over the world since social media has come out. I still haven't taken a single photo and I haven't posted anything online about it, even though I should, because that would be good for business. But it's just, I'm so glad my ski career happened after social media. Oh my gosh. I feel so sorry for the people that are in it now because I wouldn't want to have to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of different responsibilities today if you're a ski model than there maybe were a few years ago. So just to go back to your ski modeling career, the burgeoning Tristan Ulmer ski model here in the, in the Wasatch, how did that start to take off for you? Did you find new opportunities with photographers and magazines as time went on now? Well, I had two different avenues of the sport that I was pursuing. The moguls, which we've talked about, but also the ski modeling, which turned into what I eventually did, which is the big mountain extreme, we called it back then, skiing career. I start my book this way, actually. I talked about, I mean, I was really good at kicker airs. I could do helicopters and daffies and, you know, twister spreads, that kind of stuff, the standard tricks. But I'd never jumped off a cliff before, and I, I manifested an opportunity to have my skiing auditioned for a ski movie that was being shot at Squaw Valley by a guy named Eric Perlman. It was the North Face Extreme skiing team with Scott Schmidt and the Egan brothers and all that. And so I drove all night in my junker car that had no heater, slept in the parking lot at Squaw Valley. I think it was probably in January. I don't think I slept at all. I was freezing. So I pulled an all-nighter, basically, and jumped on the chairlift at 7 a.m. We had early ups and went up to this thing called the Palisades. Never heard of it. And all these guys started jumping off these cliffs for the cameras. And I realized very quickly, if I wanted to get in this film, I needed to jump off one of these cliffs. And they were throwing back scratchers. And I don't think I need to explain to your audience what a back scratcher is, but I had never seen one before. I'd certainly never done one. So I picked a cliff and announced my plan, shouted three, two, one, like I had seen the guys do. And I jumped off this 20, 25 foot cliff called the box and did a back scratcher and then stuck the landing. I slapped back a little bit, but, and then skied away and then went around, did it two more times. That was the end of our film day. And I didn't know this at the time, but there weren't many people jumping off cliffs back then. And the few people who were jumping off cliffs were there at Squaw Valley that day. And they were kind of loud mouths. And they'd certainly never seen a girl do anything like that. Maybe they'd seen a girl jump off a two-foot cliff and she'd crash. And I'm jumping off 20, 25-foot cliffs, throwing a back scratcher and not crashing. 
So by the end of the day, they told everybody in town about me. I was famous already in town. People were like coming up to me in the grocery store saying, were you the girl that was jumping off the Palisades today? And then by the end of the week, everyone in the ski industry knew my name. And within three weeks, I was fully sponsored. And all the major ski magazines had called me to do interviews with me, calling me the best woman, big mountain, extreme skier in the world. So that really manifested the next stage in your career. But I just want to go back to the decision to head out I-80 and go all the way out to what is now Palisades Tahoe. But what was it that motivated you to get in the car and go out to Squaw Valley to do this? I have since learned, even since writing the book, that my core value, number one, is radical self-expression. And I just had a lot of emotion and energy and show-offedness and arrogance and chutzpah and all that in me and and combined with a, a need for attention and approval and love and it was just the perfect storm plus I had found that I really liked doing scary things like all the stars aligned and created the perfect ideal plus I had the right body type and you know the right opportunities and the right personality and like everything lined up for me to transition from being a ski model to being the first female film star and the best in the world at big mountain extreme skiing for 12 years. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk more about fear, but I just want to go to you standing on top of the box atop Palisades, looking down below, looking at that cliff. You've never done this before. What's going through your mind then? Well, you'd think that fear would be going through somebody's mind. It never even occurred to me to be afraid that day. And, you know, it's a, that's a pretty big cliff, your first cliff. And to do a back scratcher, which I've never done before, in front of cameras, mind you, in front of a whole bunch of very famous skiers that were in all the magazines and, you know, film stars, like you'd think that I would have been a little bit afraid, but I wasn't. What was the feeling like when you stuck it, you got down to the bottom, you skied away, you're in your own zone. What's going through your mind? What's your heart doing? Well, let me back up to the last question real quick. I was afraid, but we'll talk about that after the break. To answer your next question, it felt like a job to me. I mean, I had the rush from the excitement of the jump, but I just felt like a business person who's just really focused and at work. I don't really remember... Because it's not like these other guys were watching me. We were just doing laps and trying to get footage in. And I was just all business that day. But it must have given you some sense of personal satisfaction at some point that you did this. I have felt personal satisfaction over things that I've done skiing before. I don't remember feeling it that day. Mostly, I just remember feeling like I was proud of myself that I got their attention. Well, you certainly got their attention. We're with Kristen Ulmer, Utah skier. We're going to be talking about fear when we come back. Are you still looking for that perfect holiday gift for the family? Or maybe a tune on your own boards? It really does pay to visit a shop and talk to the experts when making choices, whether it's a new pair of skis or an upgrade to your goggles. You have a lot of choices in shops here in Utah. What I really love about Level 9 is its approach to families. I mean, let's face it, outfitting your family with skis, boots, boards, jackets, and more, that can be a daunting task. Level 9 recognizes that and has implemented programs to not only make the process easier, but also helping with the impact on your wallet. 
Last month, I visited the newly renovated Level 9 Sports in downtown Salt Lake City. It's less than a minute off the freeway from the new Salt Lake City International Airport. It's an amazing old historic building in an industrial area that's going through a remarkable renaissance. Level 9's new Salt Lake City location is a huge shop, featuring a wide selection of skis and accessories. A big feature that stood out to me was literally an entire mezzanine floor dedicated to boots and boot fitting. I had a fitting myself last season at the Level 9 store in Mill Creek, and I highly recommend it. Visit the website at level9sports.com. That's level9sports spelled out. Check out the Ski Learning Center and the Teaching Children sections, a wealth of how-to videos that will walk you through the process. You can find Level 9 Sports at four locations, including Orem, Mill Creek, the new store in downtown Salt Lake City, and also in Ogden. Stop by and tell them that you heard it right here on Last Chair. Now let's get back with our friend Kristen Ulmer to learn more about how she embraced fear and how you can do the same thing the next time you're standing at the top of a double black diamond snowshoe. And we are back with Utah skier Kristen Ulmer. And Kristen, we're going to talk a little bit more about fear. You introduced us in the first half of the podcast to this amazing adventure that you did out to Palisades Tahoe to do the back scratcher off the Palisades. You wrote a book called The Art of Fear, and we're going to dive into some of that as it relates to skiing a bit. You know, many of us listening to this podcast, or I can assume almost all of the people listening to this podcast have not stood on top of the box looking down off the Palisades to make that leap. But a lot of us have stood at the top of a ridgeline. We've come off the tram, wherever it might be. And we're standing on the top of that chute and we're looking down and we really want to do it because we want to show our friends. But we have this mental block, this fear. What I really liked about your book and your approach to it is, well, I'll let you tell it, but the embracing of fear. People misunderstand people they admire who do incredibly scary things, whether it be skiing or people who run the world or, you know, businessmen and women, you know, people that take incredible risks in any way, shape, or form, we have this perception and this ideology that these people are fearless. And that is not the case. Nobody's fearless. And when I first became a fear expert, I Googled it and I realized that there's no other people that are out there that are willing to call themselves fear experts because we assume that people that are fear experts, A, are fearless, and B, can teach other people how to be fearless. And I am neither of those. So Nobody's fearless. It's not only impossible, but it's undesirable. I loved what you said about becoming an expert in fear. Had that ever crossed your mind before? No, I just fell into this. <laughs> we'll get to that maybe soon, but let me just tell you what is actually going on up there, like at the top of the Palisades, that is the secret behind the magicians, the people that you admire, that they don't even know about themselves. And Keep in mind, I've run this by 26 professional danger sports athletes from Alex Hunold, who free soloed El Capitan, to Laird Hamilton, arguably the best big wave surfer in the world, and on and on, Angel Collinson, 26 people. Out of these 26, 23 of them, once I shared these ideas with them that they didn't even know about, they nodded their heads yes so hard, I thought they were going to break their necks. This is, brace yourself, this is going to shock you. We're not fearless. Instead, what we have is two things. First of all, we have a willingness to feel fear. And based on that, this is, this is going to be the first thing that shocks you. 
fear doesn't hold anybody back from doing anything. It doesn't hold anybody back from skiing moguls. It doesn't hold anybody back from skiing their first black diamond. It doesn't hold anybody back from even taking up skiing. We get that wrong. It's your unwillingness to feel fear, which holds you back, which is very different. So if you become willing to feel fear, then you're willing to step out of your comfort zone. You're willing to take a risk. So that's the first secret. You become willing to feel fear. And those of us who do this kind of stuff for a living, we actually even enjoy feeling fear. It's like a whole nother level beyond. And then the second thing is when we're out of our comfort zone doing scary things, instead of ignoring fear or conquering it or overcoming it or fighting it or rationalizing it away or all of the things that we're taught to do, what we do is drum roll, please. We have intimacy with this misunderstood emotion. And when you have intimacy with the fear, then it takes you into an altered state where you actually bring your A game to everything that you do. It's like you plus fear equals super you. It's like I'm Batman, let's call it. And fear is Robin and we're stronger together than apart. And fear becomes my intuitive advisor. It becomes my energy resource, it becomes my motivation, it becomes the thing that I'm chasing, the thing that takes me into that higher altered flow state that we all desire and little else does. So recapping it, A, we're willing to feel fear, even enjoy feeling fear, and what we have is intimacy with fear, and that intimacy is the thing that takes us into the zone, basically, and little else does. I was listening to the book, Art of Fear, and I was thinking to myself, how does this apply to me? And I was thinking initially, not so much as a skier, but as a professional communicator, as someone who speaks on stage. What I think I thrive on is that maybe it's the deadline or it's the crisis or it's the, wow, I'm walking out and I'm talking to 5,000 people. It's that anticipation of maybe what could go wrong, which is what really I think helps me to do a good job. Is that a reasonable interpretation of it from your perspective? Yes. I mean, there's so much going on there. I mean, if, if there isn't fear, what really will you have accomplished by giving that speech in front of 5,000 people? I got a phone call the other day because I give a lot of keynote speeches about fear. And, oh, do you want to give this speech in front of 10,000 people? They really said that? Well, it was in front of 10,000. They they told me it was 3,000. It wound up being 10,000, but it was during COVID, of course, so it's virtual. For me, it's not the question of, oh, do you want to give this speech? It's the question of, are you in the mood for fear right now? Are you in the mood for a lot of fear? (laughs) Are you in the mood for feeling fear for three months while you prepare for this? And then having that fear when you step out on the stage and then having the fear for the possibility mind you, only the possibility of feeling really good about yourself afterwards. But it could also tank so hard. But the thing is, what comes with a willingness to feel fear is an opportunity for learning and growth. Not only an opportunity for learning and growth of the material that I'm about to present, but also learning a lot about myself during the process. And then also being able to possibly have connection with a lot of people, expand my business, and on and on and on. So I'm on the phone, and they're like, do you want to do this? And I'm all I'm hearing is, you know, are you in the mood for fear? We'll pay you money in order to feel a lot of fear. And the answer for me is yes, of course, because fear is my thing. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not in the mood for fear. But whenever I'm in the mood for learning and growing, I'll always say yes. You know, I think that one of the things for me, it's that planning and anticipation process. And I wonder when you worked with professional athletes, athletes who are at the absolute 
pinnacle of their sport. How much did they fear the process and fear the lead up to the actual activity itself? It's not a matter of how much. I think that for most people, it's like, do they? And the answer is, of course they do. Absolutely. Like a picture an athlete that's about to go to the Olympics. You're supposed to feel fear. That's part of the deal. And I mean, especially a big event such as the Olympics, you're going to feel a lot more fear than just, you know, world championships, a bigger stage. And the fear is supposed to help you prepare and trade hard. I mentioned that fear is a great motivator, for example. And so if you're in your comfort zone, like picture a circle and that's your comfort zone. Okay. Now you're going to go do something. And maybe for somebody in the audience, it's like running your first marathon or skiing your first double black diamond. So that comes with a willingness to feel fear. So you step out of your comfort zone and the magical number actually is 4%. A sports psychologist named Mike Gervais came up with this. You don't want to step more than 4% out of your comfort zone. And why? Well, because three is too little and five is too much, <laughs> clearly. But it's like five, it's too much fear. You know, it's, it's just a little overwhelming. Three, you're bored. You know, so four, just a little bit. So you step out of your comfort zone, 4%, 4%. Which jumping that cliff on the Palisades that one day was just 4% out of my comfort zone. I'd done a lot of kicker air before. I'd done a lot of tricks. Like it wasn't my first air of my life. You know, that would be more than 4%. So you just do that. You step out of your comfort zone often enough. And let's say you put a dot outside that circle and then connect the new dots. You've just expanded your comfort zone. And so this is how you become a better and better skier, is you just keep taking a little bit of risk, a little bit of risk, 4%, go 4% faster you know, increments until you've expanded who you are. So I've come out here on a ski vacation from the East Coast, and I'm a pretty good skier, and I'm going to Alta, and I want to ski high rustler. And it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I want to show my buddies that I can ski high rustler. Do you have any particular points that you can give someone to kind of get their mind in a position to embrace that fear and to go ahead and do it? Most people are in the bad habit of resisting fear or ignoring fear or blocking it out or doing it, you know, you hear, feel the fear and do it anyway. Like anyway is really disrespectful to fear. So I would say that if you do that, you might be able to ski high rustler, but you've just turned off your primary source of safety and intuition. I mean, it works, but there's consequences for that. You could get injured or you could go home and kick the dog. You know, you could go home and, and develop insomnia. You could go home and develop anxiety disorders because that fear that you haven't dealt with on the ski slope will show up somewhere, anywhere else in your life. And it will it'll just come out of nowhere and you have no idea why. Like if you've spent your whole life just blocking out fear to become the skier that you want to be, and then one day you're driving down a country road and you have a panic attack, well, that's the consequence of ignoring your fear uh, while you ski. So I also see people who are fearless at work, for example, and then that fear becomes redirected at skiing. And next thing you know, they're pickled in fear when they go skiing. So it, it can also go in the opposite direction. And just know that if you block out fear in order to ski the way you want to, there are consequences for that. And there, there's a lot of different kinds of consequences. Much, much better is to just stand at the top of High Rustler and maybe close your eyes and go inside and find that kind of sense of energy or excitement. Fear, neurochemically, and excitement are exactly the same thing. Just find that excited part of you or that kind of alive part of you that's because you're a little bit out of your comfort zone. That's your fear. And just close your eyes and just, you know, sometimes you have to start small. Just accept that it's there. 
and then maybe embrace it. Give it a hug. And if you're like, well, I don't know how to do that, know that it's physical and you've been embracing people your whole life. Like, remember embracing your dog? What was that like, right? Do that with that part of you in your body. And then as for having intimacy with that part of you, I'm sure you've had intimacy with your dog before. I'm not talking sex. I'm talking about just connection, like the deepest form of connection. And if you are willing to connect with fear in your body, wherever it is, then automatically you're in your body. You're about to ski in your body instead of in your head, you know, and in your body is lower center of gravity, better place from which to perform. And it also then becomes like this energy resource that helps you be sharp and focused and on point and present. It helps you make intuitive reactions, you know, without thought, all without thought, like this is the process. Just go there. It's in your body. It's a physical experience to become intimate with your fear. Kristen, you have counseled business leaders on fear, some of the world's greatest athletes, but we as skiers also have an opportunity. You do camps to address this. I know you have some coming up this season here in Utah, but what will skiers get out of one of your camps? I mean, how can this help them to maybe take on their fears and become better skiers? I would say that having a healthy, flowing relationship with fear is the most important personal work that you can do. I often say that your relationship with fear is the most important relationship of your life because it's the relationship that you have with yourself at your core. And so people come to my camps for a number of reasons. They come to improve their skiing or they come to just address some sort of personal life experience that may or may not have to do with fear. Some people have anxiety disorders. Other people are very highly functioning, very highly accomplished, but there's just feeling like there's something missing or that there's something more that they can access or there's something that they access while skiing that they want to be able to learn how to take home with them. Or people come just because they're curious because my camps get a lot of attention. They're so different. USA Today did some research and determined they're the only camp of its kind in the world in any sport. Mindset only, no technical tips. So you are a skier. You've been a lifelong skier. You've tackled it as a professional. We're coming into the holidays now. It's ski season here in Utah. What's a fun day for you to go out and ski here? When I go skiing at the resorts, I'm not in the mood for fear anymore. Like my goal is to become a worse and worse skier and be okay with it. <laughs> I am becoming a better and better snowboarder. Like I'm in the mood for fear with snowboarding. But as it relates to skiing, like I've kind of done it all. You know, I, I don't really want to push myself skiing anymore because I don't want to get injured anymore. Like I'm a retired racehorse basically <laughs> that just wants to sit in the meadow and eat some grass. So I mostly go skiing to hang out with my friends. And that's one thing that we explore in the ski camps. Like on a scale of one to 10, I'll always ask people, how much do you really care about improving your skiing? and 10 being high. And some people say 10, some people say zero. I'm a zero. What are the joys? I know hanging out with friends is a big part of it, but what are some of the joys that you as an individual take away from being up on a mountain, on a board, or on a pair of skis? Because my number one core value is radical self-expression, I will always want to express whatever it is that I'm feeling. And sometimes for me, that is just laying in the snow and watching people ski by and just getting a kick out of the whole scene. You know, if I'm just feeling really contemplative, that's what I go and do. This is also something that we explore in the camp 
is what is your number one core value and how can you go and accentuate that while skiing? Like, you know, the guy on a powder day that all he wants to do is pick up people's skis after they've crashed. Like he'll stop his powder run to pick up somebody's, like, what is that? I don't get it. That guy's from Wisconsin. Yes, he is. But their core value is either kindness or being helpful. And so if that's really what his thing is, his jam is, like I want to help him, first of all, recognize that and make sure that that is accentuated 100% when he's out there on the mountain. And everybody's different. So it's not one size fits all. Like what inspires me to be a world-class skier or now what I'm doing on the mountain is going to be different from what inspires a different world-class skier if I'm training a world-class skier versus a recreational skier, you know, I'm not here to try to get anybody to be motivated by the things that I'm motivated by. I'm only here to help them figure out what their jam really, really is. And then basically take that to the top of the mountain, like accentuate that and also show them how they can take it home with them after their ski vacation is over. I love that philosophy. Kristen Ulmer, thanks for joining us on last year, the Ski Utah podcast. We're going to close it off now with a little lightning round called Fresh Tracks. And right out of the shoot, I got to ask you, what's the most fearful thing that you've ever done? You're an expert on fear. What's the most fearful thing you've done? Well, if we're talking skiing, the most fearful thing I've ever chosen to do was do the first female ski descent of the Grand Teton. And the most fearful thing that's ever been imposed on me was standing on the side of the north face of the Aiguille Midi in Chamonix, France, with up to seven-story high avalanches running down my back, thinking I'm about to die. Tell me more about the Grand Teton. I skied it in, oh, 1997. I'm the first female to do it. I didn't really realize how big of a deal it would be and that I would make it in the history books. It was just something cool that I wanted to do with my friends. We climbed the Grand without any ropes, basically. I mean, we were belayed by a friend for about 40 feet, and that's it. It's pretty intense. The conditions were horrible. I skied it with Pitor Spricenix and Tom Youngst, two good friends of mine, ski mountaineers. It was quite a memory. Was it for a film? No, because it's very hard to find cinematographers that are willing to ski the Grand Teton with you. So no, there's, and it would be really boring ski footage. It took us six hours to descend 2,500 vertical feet. Man, amazing. Back to Utah. Do you have a favorite ski run in Utah? I would say that High Rustler, of course, at Alta. And the North Chute at Snowbird, which is very rarely open and only the locals kind of know about it. Like you have to be in the know. And, and the only way that you know that it's open because the rope is still up is when the closed sign is gone. How about your favorite ski run anywhere in the world? You've been to a lot of places. Meteorite heli skiing in Alaska. Tommy Moe and I skied that. He won a gold medal in the Olympics. And there's an article written about him a few years after we skied it together and they said, is the highlight of your ski career winning a gold medal in the Olympics? He goes, hell no. You know, the highlight of my ski career is skiing meteorite. I'm like, yep, me too. I love it. I remember that. How about your favorite ski resort food when you're really burned out? Definitely French fries. I think sometimes the whole reason why I ski is just so that I can justify the French fries. You can always justify French fries. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Last question. This is going to be a tough one. You're an expert on fear. You've written the book, Art of Fear. You know all about fear and how to embrace it. If you had to use another word to describe fear, 
what would that be? Fun. Fun. I was thinking you might say joy, but fun is a good one too. Kristen Ulmer, thank you for joining us on Last Chair. Absolute pleasure. Thanks to my friend Kristen Ulmer for sharing her story with us here today on Last Chair. Pick up a copy of her book, The Art of Fear, or listen in on Audible as you head up the Cottonwoods for some powder skiing. She is one of the great legends of skiing here in Utah and just a wonderful person. It is the holiday season and Santa has blessed Utah resorts with some early Christmas powder. We look forward to seeing many of our listeners on the slopes this month here in Utah. Thanks again to Level 9 Sports from Orem to Mill Creek to Salt Lake City to Ogden. Level 9 Sports has all the gear that you need for your family. Check them out at level9sports.com. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. Thank you for joining us on Last Chair. We'll be back soon with more episodes. So to close us out, let's welcome back our friends Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. From all of us at Ski Utah, happy holidays. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is indeed a great time to ski. Ski Utah.